back in the 1980s, the Minnesota Twins had this description of baseball on their programs. Minnesota Twins, Major League Baseball team, had a description on their program of baseball that went exactly like this. In baseball, you have two sides. One out in the field and one in. Each man that's on the side that's in goes out. And when he's out, he comes in, and the next man goes in until he's out. When three men are out, the side that's out comes in, and the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in. Out. Sometimes you get men still in and not out. When both sides have been in and out nine times, including the not outs, that's the end of the game. Anybody follow that? (laughs) A few folks here and there, perhaps, know, know the rules of baseball well enough and have played and experienced it enough to know what all that out and in confusion was. Listen, baseball can be a confusing game. There are lots of rules uh, to it. And it can be hard to understand, especially for new players. Especially for young players. There's a baseball coach who talked about how frustrating it can be for, for young players. In fact, he said it was so frustrating at times that some of the new players wouldn't know the rules well enough that they would just give up. They would just, they would just say, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Listen to what he said. There are always new players who do not know or understand the rules, and the game becomes confusing and frustrating for them. He says, if you don't hit the ball, you're out, unless you get four bad pitches before you get three good ones. And you need to run really fast if you hit the ball, unless you hit it on the wrong side of the white line, or unless they catch it, because they have to catch it before it hits the ground. You can run past first base, and home plate, but not second or third. (laughs) And if you've got the ball, you need to step on the base to get someone out unless you have to tag them. No wonder lots of kids get frustrated. The rules are hard to follow. He says this, if children only see baseball as a bunch of rules that everyone knows but them, it's easy for them to get discouraged and to just quit. He says, when they get confused and when they do the wrong thing, in fact, everyone around them seems to get mad and upset at them, at which point they feel like it's easier to just quit. It's easier just to throw up my hands and not play. Friends, it is dangerously easy to pervert Christianity into a system of man-made traditions and rules from which people go, throwing my hands up, I can't follow all this. It's too confusing. What, What am I supposed to do when? What are all the nots? What are all the can'ts? What are all the don'ts again? Run them again for me because I'm losing track. Friends, it is dangerously easy to pervert Christianity into a system of man-made traditions and rules that if we are not careful, will dishearten those who come behind, are we preaching yet, and tempt them to throw up their arms because it's easier to just not play. 
In fact, man-made traditions and rules can even hinder sinners, can even hinder sinners from coming to know Christ. That's in the text. And if that happens, if we have become people who make this so that it hinders sinners coming to know Jesus, then that's on us. And we are no different than the Pharisees we just read about. You see, friends, Jesus came not to establish the kingdom of man. (laughs) He came to establish the kingdom of God. And when we make up rules that are not in Scripture and that hinder people from seeing Jesus for who he is, we have begun to establish our own kingdom. And in our text today, there are four examples of those who are opposing Jesus, who are trying to establish the kingdom of rules and man and regulations in a way that flew in the face of what Jesus came to actually do. We'll talk about four things that were the you can'ts. You can't do this that the Pharisees held up. The first is this. You can't eat with sinners. Verses 15 to 17. You can't eat with sinners, Jesus. Follow along. He says this to us. Mark does. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Two things here, verse 15 to note. Number one, where verse 15 says at the beginning, in his house there, just for the context so you know, it's Matthew's house. Matthew was a tax collector who had just begun to follow Jesus there. And uh, tax collectors, in case you don't know, had, had this job of, of gathering taxes from their own people for the Romans, and they made their own money by overtaxing. So you can imagine tax collectors not the favorite people in the community by any stretch. So that was Matthew. Made his money by overcharging his own people for the sake of the Romans. Matthew despised. And that was the house he was at. That's where Jesus was. Second thing to note here in the text that's important for us for context before I move forward. As he reclined at table. Reclining at table like this uh, was a posture of an intimacy of relationship. We like to sit around the table and think about, wow, this food tastes amazing. They like to get around the table and say, food's nice, but let's recline, stay a while, have a conversation, talk about life, engage one another in community, have a personal conversation. The food is sort of incidental to the purpose of let's get to know one another. We don't have time for that. Let's be real. Most of us don't live like that. But here, to recline at table like that is a way of saying, take off your jacket, stay a while, let's get comfortable and talk to one another and get to know one another. So it's a picture of an intimacy of relationship and fellowship. It's a very important part of the Jewish culture of fostering relationship with one another. So it says, He reclined at table in Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Jesus was hanging out with the so-called bad guys here. Four times in Mark, Jesus is found reclining with sinners and the sick. And here it's with the despised tax collectors and other so-called sinners and seedy characters 
that were considered sinners because of their lifestyle that should have been, according to the Jewish religious establishment, shunned. Should have been shunned and stayed away from. And here's Jesus doing the opposite. And it says this, When they saw... When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, this is the Pharisees, the Jewish religious teachers and leaders who adhered zealously to the law and to man-made traditions, they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with those who deserve to be shunned and ignored? Why on earth, in fact, what they're really saying is, why would he go against our rules? You see, the Pharisees adhered closely to the Old Testament law that had also begun to adhere very closely to this man-made oral tradition. They called it the tradition of the elders. It was sometimes written. It was sometimes oral. It wasn't the Bible. It was an addition to the Bible. So when we say man-made regulations and traditions, this is what we mean. All this stuff that they were adhering to in the law, which is why they say you can't eat with sinners. You can't eat with sinners. That's not how we do things here. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, verse 16 said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, verse 17, <laughs> Jesus is so awesome. Uh, it sounds almost silly to say, hey, Jesus is wise. But don't ever please lose the wonder of how wisely he responds to the Pharisees. He says, of course, just the right thing. He says, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are well means those who don't know they're sick. Those who are well are merely those who don't know they're sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The sick here that Jesus talks about are simply those who know they need the grace of God. They know they need, they know they need the grace of God here. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm not here for those who don't even know they're sick. I'm here for those who know they're sick and in need of a Savior. That's who I've come to call to repentance. Those who know they need it. And then he states it as a principle. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here are these Pharisees saying, you can't eat with sinners. And Jesus says, actually, that's why I came. Actually, that is why I came. There's something you're not seeing here. This is why I came. Next rule that Jesus breaks is you can't eat food when we say you should fast. You can't eat food when we say you should fast. Look at, look at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. John had disciples. This is John the Baptist. It was common for a religious teacher to have uh, disciples like that. And, he, and those disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. To fast is to just basically to abstain, to, to give up food mostly. It can be other things too. But for the Old Testament traditions, it was giving up food for the purpose of getting right with God, for the purpose of repenting, for the purpose of confessing sin. And usually that was very closely associated with an intensity of prayer during that fasting time. So I'm not eating food. My stomach's telling me so. And I'm thinking, oh, 
this would be a good time to talk to Jesus. <laughs> that's how fasting works. In, in very plain terms, that's what, what fasting is, is about. So, so John's disciples were fasting. The Pharisees were fasting. And so they were using that against Jesus. And the people came and said to him, we don't really know who the people are. Some think that they were probably planted by the Pharisees. The people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? Actually, what they're asking is, why are you suddenly exempt from our rules, Jesus? Why are you exempt from our rules? Let's talk about the rules. Here's the deal. In the Old Testament, there was one day commanded for fasting. One day that was demanded by God to fast, that was the Day of Atonement. Special day in the temple, when the Holy of Holies, just the high priest would go and atone for the sins of all the people of God. He would make up for the sins of all the people of God. There would be a sacrifice one time a year, Day of Atonement. as sort of a culmination of all the other daily sacrifices. So that was a day to fast. In Scripture, there were five other times eventually that were talked about as good optional times to fast, but none of them were commanded. So they were optional but not commanded. For the Pharisees, fasting had become a ritual test of self-righteousness. And so they established rules even beyond the suggestions of the Old Testament and said fasting two days a week was necessary for anybody who really loved God. On Monday and Thursday, you would also fast. And so then they come to the table saying to, to Jesus, John's disciples fast, we fast, how come you don't? And Jesus says, by explaining it this way, verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? To our modern sensibilities, that sounds like, what is he even saying? Jesus asked this in a way that expects, if you'll notice, a negative answer. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Any Jewish person hearing that at the time would say, well, well no, because... When a wedding's happening, we're feasting and eating and celebrating. Everybody knows a Jewish wedding is a big, long festival and celebration. And you don't fast during a wedding. So Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Pharisees sitting there going, well, I guess not. <laughs> not really. That's not how that works, is it? He says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And speaking of his disciples, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He's talking about his death, resurrection, transfiguration up to glory. And then they will fast in that day. In other words, he's saying, after I'm dead, you can go back to fasting. He's saying that because I'm here, your rules no longer apply. He's saying that because I'm here, your rules no longer apply. My, Jesus talking, perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament law changes all of that. My life means salvation is here today. And he explains it even further with a couple pictures. Keep reading verses 21 and 2 here. The first picture, he says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. No one shrinks, no one uh, sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old 
garment. Uh, before the days of uh, jean patches, like when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, before the days of jean patches like your mom used to iron on for your jeans, you couldn't, you couldn't sew unshrunk cloth to fix old clothing. The old garment is already shrunk and not flexible enough to take on the new cloth. That's what he's saying here. So keep reading. If you do that, the patch tears away from it, the, old, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. In other words, the, the old ways won't accommodate this new way. This is an entirely new way of seeing and thinking that you're missing He's saying to the Pharisees, this is a new way that you're not getting yet, he's saying to the Pharisees. He says it another way here in uh, verses 22 and following. Another picture for this uh, new order of things. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. So in Jesus' day, uh, wine was kept in goat skins, in a leather skin. Usually it was goat skin. And they were sewn around the edges to form watertight bags called wineskins. When you put in new wine, new wine that hadn't yet fermented, when you put in new wine, it would expand while it was fermenting and it would likewise stretch the skin of the bag, of the wineskin. So in other words, the bag would likewise expand to accommodate the fermenting, the expanding of the new wine. So Jesus says here, no one puts new unfermented wine into an old wineskin because an old wineskin has already expanded and can't any further. And if you put in new wine, it'll break the bag and it will ruin the wine. Keep reading. He explains it. If you do this, verse 22, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed And so are the skins. And then he states it as a principle. New wine is for fresh wineskins. He's saying what I'm bringing to the table is not what you're used to. You have to think differently about what I'm doing here. About how this works. He's saying I'm establishing a new order here. This new way of grace calls sinners to repentance. That cannot be combined with your man-made traditions. He's not saying the old way of the Old Testament doesn't work. What he's saying is your way of man-made traditions in addition to the Old Testament don't work. Jesus didn't come to patch up old religious systems and man-made traditions that are about things outside of scriptures. He came to establish something that they weren't seeing. He came to establish something they weren't seeing, which is simply put that when he came, he establishes a kingdom that calls sinners to repentance. This is subversive King Jesus here. You cannot contain him in man-made traditions. It doesn't work that way. Gets even better. Keep reading. The next thing you're not supposed to do here that he did, that they yelled at him for, is you cannot chew grain, you cannot chew on grain during the Sabbath. You cannot chew on grain during the Sabbath. Sounds ridiculous perhaps to us, 
Keep reading. Look at verse 23. It says, One Sabbath, in other words, it was a Saturday. One Sabbath, he, meaning Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And you guessed it, that's a no-no. Verse 24. The Pharisees were saying, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're saying, you can't chew grain on the Sabbath. Why are your disciples doing that? Why do you let them do that when you know that our rules say you can't do that? Why are you letting them do that when you know that our rules say they can't do that? It is true that on the Sabbath you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to rest and worship. Jesus knew that. The Pharisees knew that. So here's the deal. God's law did in fact, the Old Testament did in fact say you shouldn't work on the Sabbath and you should worship and rest. But the Pharisees felt that God's law, the Old Testament, wasn't specific enough about what that work entailed. So they came up with 1,521 don'ts to ensure that you never break the Sabbath. This is an Old Testament This is man-made traditions. 1,521 ways that define what was meant by work according to them to ensure that you, you, you never broke the Sabbath. You didn't mess up. So there were a bunch of crazy things like if you, if you walked more than 750 yards or so, you broke the Sabbath. That was too much. It does sound kind of like a lot to me too, actually. <laughs> if you were a Jew... You weren't allowed to tie a knot on Sabbath. You weren't allowed to kill a flea. You weren't allowed to kill a fly. You weren't allowed to wear a heavy coat because if you took it off and carried it, it was considered work. It even got this crazy. A woman was not allowed to look in the mirror because she might see a gray hair and pull it out which would have been reaping or working. So that's their concept. And they come to the table and they say, Aha, see, you are letting your disciples do what we say you're not supposed to do. That was according to their oral traditions, that to pick a single head of grain was considered work. At this point, Jesus is like, You have missed the forest for the trees. And he gets a little frustrated, to say the least. Look at this, verse 25. He said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him. So he starts to say, Do you know your Bible? Because I'm about to do a drop the mic moment about the Bible. He says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any man but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. This happens in 1 Samuel 21. David and his men were fleeing from King Saul, and the high priest gave them the sort of special communion bread. And it was allowed to be eaten, but only by the priests after it was used in the temple. So given the circumstances here, the priest at the time made the decision 
that the men's need, fleeing from King Saul, hungry and needing nutrition, that the men's need was more important than the ceremonial regulations. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, it's right there in the Bible. How can you not know this? You've missed the forest for the trees. <laughs> and then he says this. This is, this is radical statement here. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that the Sabbath was made for the sake of people by the mercy of God as, as a time of rest and refreshment so that they could continue after that to work effectively for the sake of kingdom fruitfulness. The Sabbath was made for humans for that purpose, not the other way around. Not the other way around. And, and when, you, when you start to say, these 1,521 ways that you can and can't do what we want you to, that fulfill the law in their terms, Jesus is saying, all this, I come and fulfilled everything. I'm Lord of this issue. Jesus is, in fact, standing before them, and they understood clearly. Jesus is saying, I am the Sabbath rest. You place your faith and your trust in me, and I'll show you what Sabbath is. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When he makes this pronouncement in verse 28, which he can do because he fulfills the law perfectly, he is claiming the authority as the Son of Man to make a full and final interpretation that they couldn't and that they shouldn't, that they were trying to do. And when he says this, it's like fighting words for the Pharisees. You can see a switch sort of goes off because the next section is crazy. In 3, 1 to 6, and I want you to feel some of the weight of what goes on here. We're talking about this section as another you can't that the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. And what they're saying is you can't help someone who's hurting during the Sabbath. This is how bad, this is how bad their man-made traditions became. They called the work of God evil. You can't help someone who's hurting during the Sabbath. Keep reading. Verse 1, chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. We don't really know the specifics, some kind of paralysis, something was wrong with his hand. And they watched Jesus, they, the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. They're just sitting right there. It's like they've got 9-1, and they're just ready for the next one to turn him in. I'm just watching Jesus. At this point, the Pharisees are just waiting for him to mess up. And Jesus knew this, verse 3, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. In front of everybody in the synagogue, in front of those watching the Pharisees, he said to him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He said to all the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now listen carefully because this is a little complicated, but it's very helpful. Jesus knew that their own traditions interpretation of the Old Testament law clearly asserted that it was okay to save a life on the Sabbath. But they had also added 
their own rigid man-made traditions. So they're coming from a place of tradition, on top of tradition, on top of tradition, which meant that in this situation, the Pharisees would rather leave the man's hand unhealed than follow their own ceremonial, religious, man-made institutional laws. Which means they were viewing Jesus' healing response as functionally evil in their minds because of their traditions. Do you see how twisted this has become? So Jesus asks, he says to them, knowing all of this, is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They have no response. It says they were silent. They knew they were wrong. They knew Jesus was right. We know this because of how they respond. Keep reading. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, as an act of defiance in part, as a demonstration of his power in part, but mostly to the man, he says, as an act that shows God's heart to save sinners, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And then verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy, the word there is kill. How to kill him. The Pharisees, who hated the Herodians, decided Jesus was dangerous enough to their own system that they would put aside their political and religious differences with the Herodians in order to kill him. Friends, be careful what you too readily call the work of evil when it might actually be the work of God. When we call sin what God calls healing, we have elevated our traditions above the status of Scripture. Let me say it again. And let me be a little bit clearer. When we elevate our programs, our styles, our methods in a way that in our own hearts calls another program or another style or another method evil, we have elevated our traditions above Scripture. And we have become a Pharisee who hinders sinners from coming to know Jesus. I don't care what the, what the program. I don't care what the style. I don't care what the method. If it's used to help sinners come to know Jesus, be careful calling it wrong or evil. When we begin to elevate, again, comma, I don't care the method, I don't care the program, I don't care the style. If there's not sin in it, 
and we elevate it to the purpose of establishing our kingdom. We have made the same error the Pharisees have made. I don't care if it's a new style. I don't care if it's an old style. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it feels like. I don't care how loud it is. I don't care how not loud it is. I don't care how much you don't like it or how much you do. The purpose Jesus came to establish was the heart of God that loves to call sinners to repentance. None of this has ever been about a particular method. None of this has ever been about a particular program. None of this has ever been about a particular style. Whether we're talking in 1919, when this church was planted as a revival tent meeting in downtown, or in 2019, when it looks entirely different. It has always been about the message. And the message is what Jesus came to proclaim. The establishing of a kingdom where the heart of God loves to call sinners to repentance. The simple message that Jesus came to proclaim is that God the Father loves to save sinners. There's no other type of person. There's no other type of person he saves. Let's pray, friends.